So you want to watch a movie, but you don't know which. Choosing the one can be a bitch. But Jared and Drew have perfected the art. So sit back, relax, and trust the dark. It's dark for movie night. What's going on, everyone? I'm Drew. And I'm Jared. And welcome to Dartboard Movie Night to a unique bonus episode of Dartboard Bonus! <laughs> Sounds like the Chia commercial. <laughs> um, yeah, so normally, you know, we would be putting out an episode about the movie that we're watching, and we'll, we'll definitely be getting back to that next week. But I think this week we uh, wanted to get out an episode that's a little bit... Uh, more more unique than uh, than our traditional episodes in that um, this is a compilation of some of our pre-recording uh, we're calling it chin wagging on on the yeah a little today. a little chin waggery going on here yeah uh, but basically before every record that we do we kind of catch up by talking about what we watched during the week uh, if anything or or just you know whatever's kind of on our mind that day. And um, it's just a way for us to get into the mode of, of recording and get, you know, to where we feel like we can uh, be at least somewhat eloquent as much as we possibly can be. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, this is just kind of our, our just shooting the shit. Yeah, I think it's going to be a fun episode just because we don't really have structure in these chats. We're not specifically talking about the dartboard movie or anything like that. And it gives Drew and I freedom to just kind of talk about anything vaguely related to movies you know whether it's just the movie going experience in general or just various different topics and we can float around to any director we want to talk about so yeah just I think it'll be kind of fun because it's unshackled it's us just kind of shooting the shit and bouncing things around it's a bit looser than if which is probably hard to believe but it's even looser than our normal show and I will probably release these every once in a while it's not going to be too common but yeah it's just a good old-fashioned chin wag well, and as Jared's saying, you know, this is definitely going to be a looser uh, feeling. And uh, that's going to be the case with the edit as well. You know, these are just us shooting the shit ahead of recording. So we're not really careful about coughs and, you know, dogs barking and whatnot. So you're going to hear some of that in, in the edits here. Um, I'm not, you know, going through diligently and, and ducking and diving for all the, the little mini pops and blips. So hopefully you can deal with a little bit of shagginess uh, to these these little clips. But but I think they're fun little chats and hopefully they cover some interesting, diverse topics and maybe encourage you to watch some new stuff. Next week, we're going to get back to our normal schedule with Bottle Rocket. That's next up on the board. Excited to get to that. But for now, enjoy this little chinwaggy chit chat. Later. is not is not extinct yet and we're still able to enjoy it and and um you've really been turning me on to the criterion stuff which is great i must say like part of me is, it has this sort of hipster aversion to it that's just nonsense but well, like, what do you mean are you picking up discs or something i'm not picking up discs but when i'm renting these movies from the videodrome whenever oh, a lot of them are criterion cuts, yeah I'm guessing. Well, yeah yeah so it's like ooh, and i'll like read the back it's like oh a lot of bonus features here yeah, I'm definitely going to do the Criterion ones. So that's why I think they're really good is the fact that they are kind of still doing bonus features because a lot of modern movies that come out, uh, even if I get them on like DVD, like I guess a recent example would be, um, I guess the last new DVD I bought was Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm. And that's got like 
no special features on it. And it's like, I mean, maybe they had some sort of deluxe version, but it's like, I miss like commentary tracks and deleted scenes and like well, documentaries. And part Criterion of what happened that. though, it, that sucks is that movie studios figured out that people really dug these special features and watched them and like devoured this content content. And the problem was they were like a hidden secret for a while. And then they became like a mainstream, like known thing in terms of like, Oh, there's like great, like I think really the one that did it was the Lord of the Rings. Um, oh my their God, extended the ones. The, the, like it's the ultimate ba- behind the scenes, uh, setup. And that turned so many people onto that at that point that studios got really careful about how much info they were letting out into those things. So you stopped mm. getting the interesting stories and these like the actors stopped being able to be candid on like the, the commentaries. Like I remember um, the Armageddon commentary is famous because <laughs> Ben Affleck on it um, is just like basically just like being completely candid about like the shit going on. And like, there's a, at one point, like a bunch of helicopters are in this shot and, and they serve no purpose whatsoever. And Ben's like, Oh yeah, these helicopters for like 2 million on the day. Yeah, sure. Why not bring them out? Let's do it. Let's put it in the shot. Fuck it. You know, like this kind of shit, like kind of like miming Michael Bay. Um, and it like, (laughs) I mean, he must've gotten in trouble or something for like everything they said, but they put it out, they put it out there and like, well, they've got those, you know, they got those disclaimers does these commentaries do not represent Fox and its affiliates you know they always have those at the start of DVDs but I mean but Ben is like talking shit about the movie actively while watching it like in a in a loving way he like he loves the movie for how ridiculous it is but like he's just like look at how stupid this is (laughs) one one of my favorite examples of that is it's not necessarily a bonus feature but I saw this clip of Philip Seymour Hoffman on I think Craig Ferguson's show it was one of those late night deals and the host was like uh, saw Twister the other day man I love that film and Hoffman just goes do you really though (laughs) (laughs) and it's it's like so funny because he he recognizes what it is it's a great cheesy not that great movie you know what I mean like it's like it's good for what it is, but like, let's like, it's not a great film. But let's that's the thing is that. like, you would never get that kind of candidness anymore on these things because they no. like, they know people are watching them and, yeah. and it's, just, it's been completely neutered. And, and I mean, really like your criterions and your like special release discs where they actually start like unveiling some of the stuff, like that's the only place you see it any, any, you know, yeah. you're never going to see it on a, on a, a standard release of a, of a film anymore. Yeah, I had a I had a daydream for a couple of weeks at work, like when I was thinking about it. It's like it would be really cool if someone did a streaming service for just special features. Like it was just like you paid monthly and you just have access to all these great bonus contents that used to be on DVDs. Well, the one thing you do you can get nowadays is um, B-roll, which is really interesting. Have you ever watched any like B-roll kind of compiled videos on on YouTube before? I don't think so, if I'm understanding the use of the word. Well, so, I mean, they, they use the word differently than you're thinking, because you're thinking mm-hmm. B-roll in the, like, documentary sense, where you're, like, capturing just, you know, still, like, like, uh, yeah, like locked a off camera shots of, like, streets and stuff to fill the gaps between, yeah. you know, that, that that's B-roll in the standard sense of the word, is just, like, any, any sort of just, like... Establishing extra, shots that ex- are, like... Yeah. Uh, 
we're in London, so let's have a shot of a wide of the London skyline. And a lot of times those shots are acquired by secondary filming units that just their job is to gather these shots that right. help the audience know where things are taking place. B-roll in the sense that I'm talking about is a it's a YouTube I, I don't know if this is like YouTube vernacular or what it is, but if you type in the name of a movie and B-roll, a lot of times, especially if it's like a major, you know, action adventure kind of production, um, like I'm thinking specifically of Mission Impossible, there's a ton of this stuff on there on, on YouTube. Mm. But if you just type in like Mission Impossible Fallout B-roll, um, you'll come up with these videos where it's all the behind the scenes uh, filming just without the interviews laid over it, you know, mm. kind of with the the dialogue talking about what's happening. So it's literally just the footage on set. And it's pretty cool. I mean, like, especially like Mission Impossible Fallout, the stuff in there is great because you see like, um, like there's a lot of behind the scenes footage just of Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie working out the motorcycle chase in Paris and like filming that on the day. And like, mm. I don't know, there's a lot of cool stuff like that on there. And I would highly recommend checking that out. It's less interesting because you're not getting the context around what they're doing. You're just seeing them do it. But right. it is pretty cool just to see the set working and like, uh, what yeah. those people are like when they're in that environment. Yeah. I've, I always get, uh, stupefied when I see behind the scenes footage like that that takes place outside of the frame of the primary camera and you know I'm someone who's worked in the biz a little but never on a major budget thing and, and more often in like documentaries and reality which have very minimal kind of lighting setups and things like that but you get you get a shot like you know the I mean my one of my favorite behind the scenes documentaries is the Magnolia one mm -hmm. and there's just like a shot of like Julianne Moore asleep in the car and there's just the person who's documenting this happening is just doing like a wide shot of the whole set around it and it's unbelievable how much equipment is all around them all the time just outside of the frame mm -hmm. and it's like it's always baffling from to me to see that stuff and i can't yeah, imagine a mission impossible or, the whole process yeah it's just like oh my god all the work that goes into just getting a shot of julia moore asleep passed out in a car is like it takes right. so much you know human power to just get that off the ground it's nutty yeah but i mean going back to just the difference between special features in like the late 90s early 2000s and now um, like I think the perfect contrast is the difference between the Lord of the Rings uh, behind the scenes and the Hobbit behind the scenes, because like mm -hmm. the Lord of the Rings behind the scenes is like, you know, more or less just a straightforward retelling of just like how they made the movies. And then you get to the Hobbit ones. And if you watch those, like there's a sanitized, like structured quality to it. That's really interesting. And it, completely glosses over all the problems that that production had and like all the hindsight like you know knowledge that we have now points to that that whole movie production being a complete fucking mess mm. and um not due to peter jackson you know or or his crew but because of just like the bullshit surrounding the making of that movie that led to them yeah, being a lot of rushing like, the production yeah there's a lot of like studio pressures right and things yeah. outside of their control that were just kind of clamping down well it was going film. on while we were studying abroad there in terms of the build-up to <laughs> it because we were there in 2010 and um at that time guillermo del toro was going to be directing them and he had done all the pre-production so all the designs and stuff were done with him as the filmmaker in mind um 
but the 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 budgeting and and MGM uh, had control of the rights and they were floundering financially at the time and so they were like struggling to to get you know the the uh, financing of it figured out then there was like a labor issue um with the 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 um the the unions of uh, the various unions in in the you know whatever the production crew uh unions were were all disputing you know their wages and everything around that time. So there were, there was just like, there was political pressure from the government to get the movie made. There was the studio threatening to move the production to London and like all kinds of shit like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, anyway, like basically what happened was Guillermo del Toro had to back out at the last second because he was like, I've got like, or well, not at the last second, but like he was like, I've got like six other projects ready to go. I need to like go do something. And he went and made Pacific Rim. Instead which is of, a dope movie, by which the is way. a great, great movie. Yeah. Uh, maybe my favorite of his, honestly. But you know, to your point, I wanted to say, like, imagine how interesting the special features of the Hobbit would be if they just were honest about all these problems. Like, why, why keep it hidden? You know, like if, it would have been cool to be like, dude, we were dealing with some shit, and just like watch an interview of like, you know, they, they had have all footage. these factors. You know they have footage of Guillermo like working with Peter. Like I want to see all that shit. Yeah, I think that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, and like let's just be honest about kind of the realities of these kind of the capitalistic and and kind of fiscal pressures that exist in filmmaking. Like can't we just be honest about well, them and just? Like, but at the same time, who's the one releasing all that shit? Yeah, first so the company that does not want to look bad in the special features, and I understand that, but it's like, like the, everyone should understand that they need to recoup their investment, and like. They shouldn't be painted as villains for viewing things that way and to all the, all the time, you know. And it's like, I would just love to see like a nuanced special feature about like, dude, these are these are kind of some of the issues we had to fight with, you know. And uh, yeah, we just don't really ever get those. No, no, and it's a shame. It uh, yeah. it's you know that's that's what's interesting about the industry to me. And like, I don't know. I feel like. If you tell the true story there, if anything, it makes those DVDs more valuable to me. I might go For actually sure. buy them. Yeah, if they had a like an, a a forty five minute documentary, yeah, on the Hobbit Blu Ray that was like talking about, oh, this, here's how all this shit went down with Guillermo, why he had to leave, it all this be stuff. The, yeah, I would buy. I would probably buy it to watch that. <laughs> like, it wouldn't be the first time I bought a DVD just to watch the special features. That's literally why I own. Uh, the Phantom Menace is because that mm. that making of is amazing and it's very mm. candid and like has very like weird cutaways to George Lucas like realizing he made a piece of shit <laughs> in the mm. screening room and like it's really interesting. I just remember him and Steven Spielberg in that documentary, like overlooking all of like the the droid army that had been built. And George Lucas, like, trying to explain, like, oh, no, this is going to be a big, like, kind of, like, a Zulu doll or whatever the movie example mm-hmm. he's making. And Steve is just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, eyes crossing. He's like, no, watching that. Steven's like, like I, that's going to be great. Yeah. That's going to be great. <laughs> I feel like watching both of them, it's like, are they just both lying to themselves? Like, can everyone just see that a turd is being formed? Oh, man. watched the original the heartbreak kid which you have recommended for me like elaine may movies you've been raving about them forever since since this is not the portion of the show that'll get released uh i don't mind saying that i had a torrented copy of and i also should say uh 
everyone should feel free to torrent the Heartbreak Kid because it's a movie that is owned by a pharmaceutical company at this point, which Fuck refuses that. to put out a any sort of release of the movie in any way. Doesn't um, make sense. Is, They'd make money. They'd make money. What are they doing? I mean, I don't even I don't even know if they would, but they would break even. Um, oh, put like, it on re- pay to rent on streaming. And it's, it's just like you're holding on to a piece of art that like. It just it, the idea of ownership of this kind of shit pisses me off on a fundamental level. But just yeah. I, I, you know, it just sucks that like that is what's preventing people from experiencing legitimately one of the greatest comedies of all time. How it's did really you feel good. about it? I liked it a lot. That is one that I, has aged beautifully. It, it I mean, I, I wish I. It's one I wish I could be in a time machine for and like see it fresh and watch it age. You know, because I just came to it, you know, just the other day. But two things came to mind just right out of the gate. I did not know that the Ben Stiller, the Heartbreak Kid, was a remake. Speaking of Ben Stiller. Yeah, which is just kind of funny. Funny little through line with with Severance. No, but But, um, so you had no idea that was a remake. No, and I watched that like around the time it came out when I was in high school, some high school, early college maybe. And I, I vaguely remembered the title, but I didn't make the connection with this film and then when we when I started watching it and it got to that part where they get married they're in the motel they have sex for the first time and she's playing with his nipple and he's like it's really sensitive could you stop that please and she's like okay I'll make squares then and I was like oh my god I remember that scene in the Ben Stiller one and that movie was also called The Heartbreak Kid so it was like this thunderbolt of like that was a remake I never knew um, a remake but- that on a basic level, completely misunderstands what the first movie is about. So fucking true. Like, it's, 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 I mean, there, there, there does have a slightly bittersweet ending. But the Michelle Monaghan character is, like, the ideal. Like, he's still, yeah. like, they, they make that, like, they created a movie where the central character is likable, which is the opposite of what the the charles groden character is in in the heartbreak kid he is the most deplorable fucking human being (laughs) and he is so oblivious to how deplorable he is and so (laughs) convinced that he's a good guy that it just like creates this central character that is so fucking fascinating to follow that is not the case with Ben Stiller in that movie. In the Ben Stiller movie, he is oh, like, no. He's a very like, likable guy who's just like, eh, I just haven't found the right woman yet. Yeah, and her and and the character opposite of Ben Stiller in That's that the more version point. You're right. is like she was a recovering coke addict, and she's like more difficult in a lot of ways. Um, but your 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 central point is so spot on. It's like doesn't have any of that. Well, that's not the answer. No, no, no. It it completely you miss it missed the boat totally on that. Well, no, no, no. But you you were almost to the point that I was hoping you were going to make, which is just that the Mal- Malin Ackerman character, the the girl that he marries on a whim because he's desperate to get married, um, who in the original is um, played by Jeannie Berlin in one of the best performances <sighs> I've ever seen in my entire life. But we'll get to she's her in a so, second. She's so good. Malin Ackerman's yeah. character in the remake is is so clearly defined as a horrible person that yeah. you that you root for the Ben Stiller character and it justifies his actions which, which is such a clean yeah. studio type of decision the you know whole what I mean? point of the original is that 
Jeannie Berlin, yes, she is like maybe annoying. Maybe she's not like a great person for this person. Um, and maybe you don't want to marry this person, but she is a person and she, yeah. is a, she has feelings and like, she's, and she is someone who is a like inherently, um, sympathetic. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like, cause she, like you're saying, she's, she does things that are intended to look and come across beautifully as very annoying things like that, but she's not malicious. No, she's a kind person. And I was fascinated at my reaction to the scenes where Groden would come storming in and go off into some huge fucking lie. And they're so funny, but he's, but they're also like disgusting. It's a really interesting reaction where I'm like laughing at, at how good he is. at spinning off this ridiculous lie about being in a huge car accident or whatever, going to court and like, but his performance is so fucking good in those scenes, in every scene. And he, uh, I mean, he's, he's getting, he's, he's not big dog, but he's getting up there for me. I, I've, I've found him kind of late in life, but I am kind of smitten right now. Isn't he the greatest? He's so, so good. You need and again. To, okay. All right. I, I'm just going to put this out there. If your next addition to the board is not Midnight Run, I am going to be violently angry with you. <laughs> you because, might be. Is, to, is it my my week? I think look, it's my I mean, week. We've, and, and here's another thing that we've talked about. And I mean, maybe we'll clip this into the show at the end or something. But um, we've talked about... What is big dog status? What where where is Robard sitting in the pantheon? If we're yeah. calling him big dog, is that a title? Is that a belt that can be passed around? I think it's a belt. I I see it as a belt. I don't think it's undisputed. As of now, I'm leaning towards saying Robard still is holding the belt. Oh yeah, but He's Groden, the big dog. He's king of the mountain right now. Groden is kind of shadow boxing a little bit, like getting ready to kind of take him down, possibly. I Groden's don't know. Groden's got that sly smirk on his face. He's looking out of the side of his eye, and he's he's looking at Robards with a, with a uh, a bit of a drool. Yeah, and I mean, if he was will, one of the, my favorite performances in, in Catch Twenty Two. We also established that Albert Finney is Med Dog, which I don't know if that's no. where that sits with the title. He's sliding. <laughs> Albert Finney is Med Dog. He's he's behind Groden now. Albert, he's, he's, Albert he's, Finney is like the secretary to all big dogs. He, he will sit dog. on the, at the at the right hand of that dog, but he will never yeah. be the big dog. And he's a dog. Don't get me wrong. We're <laughs> a, we're big around here at Dartboard Movie Night Podcast. We are big fans of Albert Finney, but he's not big dog, and he's no longer med dog. Wait, he's not med dog now. I think he's just a dog. He's relinquishing he's, that. He's in the kennel. He's a dog. He's he's okay. one of the he's one of the good. Okay, so, people we, that you so want we've to now see. established that there is a kennel. Okay. Yeah, there's a kennel. It's kind of like a stable, you know, of like great actors, you know? Yeah. Like imagine we're casting a movie and it's like, oh, we could have, you know, like wouldn't you love to see Charles Grodin <laughs> in a scene with Jason Robards? I don't know if that ever happened, but I would fucking love to see that. Just two titans just going at it, you know? Okay. Um, but as I was saying, Grodin was like one of my favorite parts of Catch-22 in terms of performances. And I first saw Charles Grodin in the TV series Louie, in which he's much older and he's much later in life. And he plays like Louie's neighbor doctor, who's just this very bitter and sarcastic kind of curmudgeonly character, but is so funny. 
So that was my first impression of the man. And now that I'm seeing a lot of his younger roles, I'm like, this guy is amazing. Like he's even good in that terrible version of King Kong from the seventies. And like, he's even okay in it. He's got like nothing good to do it up in a great way. He's doing fine. You know, he's holding his own. No, but he's going for something, you know, like, like in that movie, like there's a lot of mediocrity in that movie and he stands out because he's going big. Yeah. Yeah. He's taking, he's kind of, he's like the only person who can see the forest for the trees in that movie in a way. Like, I think he's the only person who kind of recognizes what I think we said that when we recorded that, like, cause that was one of our test records. And, and I think like, I think we said like, Groden is the only one who understands what this movie should be. Uh, but yes, we've established that there is a kennel now and there are dogs and big dog is Jason Robards. And I really mm-hmm. like this concept and I, we're going to run with this as a bit. Yeah. And then like if we if we're talking about a performance we really liked, we could just be like, are they in the kennel? Are they in the are kennel? They, are they in the kennel? Where are they in the pecking order of the kennel? You know, it'll be tough. Like, I, I can't imagine. Is this a Shih enjoying... kind of cowering in the corner or are we talking <laughs> the, a Doberman that's up there fighting for, yeah. for the this front dog's of the pack? Strutting in, you know. So yeah, really loved Heartbreak Kid yeah. and really want to give a shout out to the actor who plays the father. He is so good and he like rival, there's, there's so many great performances in the movie, but he was killing me every scene he was in. His name is Eddie Albert. Eddie Albert. That's right. Cause I looked it up after, but I forgot. But yeah, um, he, um, the scene, the dinner scene where he meets Charles Grodin is among my favorite scenes I've ever seen. Well, so shout out, Elaine May is the filmmaker. She was like, if not the like second or third, she was among the first women to be accepted into the DGA, the Directors Guild. Mm-hmm. Um, she's a, a historically funny, like she is like on Mount Rushmore and from, from my perspective in terms of comedians. She's one of the best writers of all time. We've talked about her before in regards to Mike Nichols and, and Nichols and May was their duo, their sketch comedy duo from the 50s and 60s that is just still funny. The Heartbreak Kid was uh, Elaine May's second film. Uh, a New Leaf was her first movie with Walter Matthau, which would be great to continue Walter Matthau after we did The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Um, he is most definitely in the kennel. Yeah. I would like to see that. What movie is that called again? A New Leaf. A New Leaf. Okay. And is it, it's a comedy? It's a Matthau comedy? And it's hysterical. And it co-stars Elaine May. But anyway, she made this movie and her daughter, Jeannie Berlin, plays Lila, who uh, Charles Grodin marries on a whim early in the movie because he wants to be married. Uh, and subsequently on their honeymoon finds out that she's not for him at all and is kind of a little bit nuts um but in this movie in a likable endearing way much more than a uh psychopathic way like in the remake Uh, but anyway Jeannie berlin is absolutely incredible in this movie and yeah it's what i i i think it's one of the best performances i've ever seen the turn that she makes it is so heartbreaking and you go from this character being comic relief in the movie and being like you know kind of just a a over-the-top um absurd character to being a person and like like having like real deep emotions and like having her heart broken and and man she sells that turn in such a beautiful way you go from 
laughing your ass off because Groden's like chewing out this waiter. You go from that to immediately like tearing up because Jeannie Berlin is like breaking. And that's the yeah. kind of like shit that Elaine May, I don't know how she pulls that shit off. It's like incredible how she gets this pathos and this, this like, it's the same way with Ishtar. Like you get this, this friendship between Dustin Hoffman and, and Warren Beatty that is so tangibly loving and, and, and deep and like, I don't know how she pulls these things off. Yeah. I have the exact same emotional reaction as you did to the lobster scene where I was like laughing at Groden with the pecan pie and all the, oh, the lobster stuff. Pie. Sorry. It was not yeah. The he's lobster, like, we drove like... all the way from New York for the pecan pie. And he's like freaking it. And he's, and the guy's like, we have blueberry pie. He's like, it's so funny. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a very comedic scene. And then very quickly, it's not. And all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, this is not funny anymore. And it's just a very heartbreaking, sad yeah. scene. And that turn, it for me, was so unexpected. And I was like, oh, this is, this is not... You know, comedy can be more than one thing. And, yeah. and it's nice to see. And I get, it made me understand when you said, like, Elaine May was, like, the progenitor for Judd Apatow. Elaine yeah. May was, like... Yeah. The progenitor for Judd Apatow. Well, and James L. Brooks, like very closely after these movies were coming out, was clearly yep. like getting a lot of a lot of stuff from her too. Um, I gotta believe that there was some inspiration there on both of their parts. For but, sure. But, I and, mean, Judd Apatow has specifically called it out. Yeah, you don't have to be smacking someone with a rubber chicken every five minutes. You can take you can take a beat and have a serious emotional moment. And and Apatow in his best movies is is really good at that, I mm -hmm. think. So it makes it makes sense. You know, I feel like that's another thing that was totally missing from the remake. I don't ever remember feeling bad for No, it's because it's the Farrelly brothers who made it. Yeah. Who like they they can't do subtlety. They are incapable yeah. of it. Just look at fucking uh, Green Book. <laughs> they made that movie? Yeah. Well Peter oh. did. Peter Farrelly. Phantom Thread, maybe a mm. week ago or so, just kind of on a whim. I think it was available for streaming somewhere free, and I was like, feeling it. So I dove back in. I think it's my third time seeing it, something like that. And I really like the movie a lot. There's parts of it that are awesome and incredible. And I can't think of her name right now, but that woman who plays the the key, the, the muse and the love interest um, is oh God, outstanding. What's her name? I just had it. Uh, Vicky Creeps. Vicky Creeps. Yes, exactly. She is so great in that movie. And oh, she's great. But I really do think it might be really uh, low on the list for PTA movies for me. Interesting. It's only um, gone up in my estimation the more I've watched it. That's fascinating. For me, it's had a bit of the inverse. When I first saw it, I was enamored. And then it doesn't. I don't know. For me, it's just not one I want to revisit often. Oh, see, that um, movie is intoxicating to me. It's just like you could just, I could just sit and be in that world for, for hours. And just like the way the, I mean, it's the only movie that PTA, or I, I want to say it's the only one. I could be wrong, but I think it's the only one that he was his own cinema, cinematographer on. Mm -hmm. And I think he did an unbelievable job. I wish he would shoot oh, more of great. his own movies, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, me as a visual guy, I love that shit. 
the movie looks outstanding. And I guess it was kind of like a team effort between him and his grips and his and his uh, operators, I think. Um, but I mean, that's it, probably it looks true amazing. of most cinematographers, I would say. Like, I mean, Deacons is only as good as his like assistants and, you know, how well <laughs> they set everything up, you know? Yeah, dude, I heard this great story. Whoever the cinematographer was on Django. Um, uh, Robert Richardson. His... Yes, yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I worked with this AC who I won't drop his name, but he, he day played on that on that movie and he was working. <laughs> and the guy was like, they had this thing they called like the Bobcom, which was a one-way radio where <laughs> Robert Richardson would just kind of shout at the lighting and ca- lighting and, <laughs> a one-way and radio and, and he said he, the guy there turns to my friend and just goes just listen to this shit and he like plugs into the bobcom and it's just like i don't know what the fuck that's lights doing there get that shit out of there get that over there get that, that, that. It's just like oh rip. my god that's amazing <laughs> yeah it's so funny yeah was it generally um, like people didn't like working for him or was it just no that i think he's just you know I, i'm sure he's just a perfectionist and yeah, also yeah. no to me that just defense, sounds like an artist who knows exactly what they want and is yeah. very particular i mean david fincher's the same way you know and who knows you know maybe that was just a like a an annoying day maybe he's not normally like that who knows but it was just kind of funny <laughs> just to hear that anecdote <laughs> Um, I just love the concept of a one-way radio. It's so dictatorial. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, it's like I don't need to hear from you. It's a real vibe. It's a real. It's it's. That's, that's a power move. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, I mean, we talk about it a lot when we talk filmographies of directors. It's like they're all when it's a great director, they're all fantastic movies. Um, and it's no different with PTA, obviously. But for me, the bottom tier ones, and there's still movies I love, but I like them less than the others, are movies like uh, Punch Drunk Love, and I think, and I think Phantom Thread is kind of in that kind of lower tier for me. It's so um, funny because I mean, Punch Drunk Love is super high on my list. So like yeah. those those movies speak to me. Um, I think like I think, and I need to give Licorice Pizza another watch. Because I, I didn't totally respond to that on first watch, and I haven't revisited it yet. But um, I tend to really love um, when PTA goes intimate. You know, when mm-hmm. he like gets real deep with just a, like one or two characters. You know, I'm yeah. thinking there will be blood. I think the master is is you know just a three person story really. Um, you know, like I think all that stuff really works. And I mean, I'm saying this while at the same time Boogie Nights is my favorite of his whole filmography and that's like his mm. sprawling, you know, family, you know, family portrait kind of, you know, movie yeah. where it's got a million characters. So, I think he can do both, but I don't know. I just there's something about those movies they they just have this beautiful energy to them. Um I'm thinking of like he just he he knows how to capture this moment uh of of you know, human connection in a really cool way. Like I'm thinking in Phantom Thread specifically of the shot of Daniel Day Lewis, um, like racing through the New Year's Eve party to to find yeah. Vicky Creeps. That mm-hmm. that single take, just following him through this giant party with the balloons falling down, and you know the New Year's Eve party, and it's it's just intoxicating. That scene, yes. just like it, you could drink in that scene, like, and it's just like, oh, it's a staggering thing. And what's crazy about it too is, you know. 
thinking about you and I both love researching how movies are made. So sometimes we view it in that way. I'm just like, holy shit, this is complicated. Mm-hmm. Like from just a from just a pulling it off standpoint. So many costumes. There's so much going on. The room looks amazing. It's got so much activity. And, you know, everything's period accurate, all sorts of kind of craziness. And the shot, like, what I really like about it is they don't, it doesn't overstay its welcome. Like, I could see the appeal. Like, if you're involved in the creative process and people go to all of these lengths, so many different departments and so many different artists put so much effort into getting this scene off the ground. And I I could see the temptation to, to hang out there maybe longer than you should in terms of the, the story and how much the story needs. So I think it's really cool that that sequence we're talking about does not overstay. No, but it's, it's, it's equally sh- as powerful as anything yeah. that would be longer. Absolutely. It's the perfect length, but it, it just, it, it smacks you in the face and you're just like, holy shit, that's so beautiful. What a great looking party. Well, and just the, and, and the, I think what I love in that movie is when he chooses to be really delicate with his camera moves versus when he kind of goes handheld and lets, you know, lets you kind of be more visceral in that way. Mm-hmm. And that scene particularly like stands out as one of those more visceral things where like, you know, you're, you're conveying the, the panic in this character of like, I need to find this person because this is my person. Um, mm-hmm. Like the panic in him of like, you know, fearing, you know, not being able to get that back. I think that's kind of the context of it at the yeah. time. I don't know. You've seen it a lot no, absolutely. more recently. Yeah, they, they, absolutely. It's, a, it's exactly right. They have, they're, they're married at this point and we're starting to see some of the cracks in the relationship. Right. It's really early into the post-marriage stuff. Mm-hmm. And their age differences and their outlook on life differences are kind of starting to rear. And like, she wants to go out dancing because it's New Year's Eve and he kind of wants to stay in and just work and chill. And it's mm-hmm. so funny to me. I was, I, I said, to, I was like, that is a, definitely a sign that I am fucking getting older. Cause when they're, <laughs> they're having that conversation, I think I would prefer Daniel day Lewis's <laughs> night than what, within what Vicky creeps is suggesting. It's like, ah, go out to this big fucking party with dancing. Like, I think I'd rather just chill, you know, but then you get so, to the yeah. party and it looks pretty rad. I don't uh, know. Yeah. That's like, I would have felt like I missed out. Yeah. So, <laughs> but anyway, uh, no, but just the way that he shoots that and he conveys that emotion behind what's going on, it, you know, with how frantic the camera is, you know, rushing through this party um and i don't know i just i love shit like that and and yeah it's so like those are the things that that i really just latch on to and i mean like yeah. another one is is like in punch drunk love the scene uh when he calls her from hawaii like in the phone booth with the parade behind him yeah um, that's and, that's and it's just scene. like you know it, it's it, i don't know there's just those those kind of moments just get me and that that's what i love with pta the most yeah, yeah, he. You're right, though. He does have a really nice. Uh, the way his filmography is growing is fascinating because he does have these like really big ensemble movies like Boogie Nights that you mentioned, Magnolia. I would even think. Well, Heart Eight. Heart Eight's kind of in that category in the, too. It's kind of in between. It's like a little a, bit. It's like a. It's like a close romance story between two characters, but also there's a ton swirling around it that's kind of ensemble-ish, but. Um, and I would say Inherent Vice is ensemble as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then he does have the like kind of a, a, a handful of characters and really exploring the dynamic between them. And I mm-hmm. think like you mentioning There Will Be Blood and the Master definitely fit into those categories. 
and I think I think the Master Magnolia, those are like the my more favorites. I would kind of agree with you. Licorice Pizza is a little too soon, but I loved it. I we really talked, really dig that movie. Yeah, we talked so much about Magnolia the other week. I still have yet to go back and revisit that, but I feel like I need to. Yeah, yeah, that movie's. I mean, I don't know. It's 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 great. It's definitely a little too long. Oh, um, for sure. But it's still by his own admission. Yeah, and I but I just there's something about it I think is so so great. Um, but and Inherent Vice has really climbed the ranks. That, I'm, I like that one more and more. That movie's super fun. Um, yeah, another one we did as a test record. Yeah. But maybe yeah, maybe one day we'll do our formal. PTA tier list just as super fans with the understanding that they're all great movies and it would be fun to see how different our lists are because I bet they're I mean we've already found out they're pretty different right out of the shoot I mean it's tough because like I feel like the way to do that is to cover a PTA movie but we've seen all the PTA movies we just have to do it in like three or four years maybe we we do like coffee and cigarettes yeah we do (laughs) we do a bonus episode about that short or the or the original Dirk Diggler story yeah well we could just do his shorts as an entry on the board (laughs) that'd be kind of fun um yeah I was thinking too about how he doesn't do commentaries anymore and we've talked about that in the past if but he's doing ask, a lot of these interviews, though. Yeah, he's he and he's which great he didn't in do interviews. for a long time. Like from there will be blood until like after what like after Inherent Vice. Like the the WTF interview was the only thing he did for a long time, and then in the last like two years, he's done like four different interviews on podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw one of him recently on the Nerdist. He was on Bill Simmons' podcast promoting Licorice Pizza re- fairly recently. Um, so yeah, I think he he. I don't. I, I don't know. I don't know if he enjoys it or not. Who the hell knows? But like, he seems present in the discussions. He seems. He seems engaged and involved. And um, no, he seems yeah. like he's enjoying it. He seems like he's yeah. in really in a really happy place right now, which is cool. Maybe he just gets not that he was ever really about, in a dark period. I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm yeah. uh, but but he certainly seems like well adjusted right now. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. And uh, yeah, dude, his movies are just fucking dope. Yeah. I love that he's married to Maya Rudolph too. That's so cool. Yeah. What a awesome. power couple. Yeah, it really is. I'm pretty psyched too that it's my week to nominate a film, by the way. Yeah. Uh, put some I- thought into it. Yeah, I've been I've been really thinking about it, and there were three in contention, and in the last few days, I'm like, no, no, this is the one. So I kind of know what I want to do. Nice. But it's like, you know, I do have that thought. It's like, well, if we keep going with this, you know, years and years or whatever, like, are we ever going to run out? And it's just like, no. Like, I get, there's so many movies that I hear about, I just get excited about. Like, it's, there's like, it's like a never-ending well. Yeah. No, I mean, there's uh, there's tons to put on there. I mean, there's... yeah whatever a hundred years of film history that we can dig into that we can choose from yeah fuck it let's put on some silent films let's do it yeah i'll do metropolis like the like the artist i'll do i'll do yeah exactly dude i've never i still have never seen that one but i don't want to i don't really intend to it just seems like such a gimmick i just i can't it's like oh i mean we've talked about it in the past but like yes you could do that but should you that's one of them it's like yeah, I get. I can see the appeal. Should. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, you could make a silent movie, but why? Like, I don't know. It just seems like an unnecessary restriction. Well, I think it's fitting that 
after that movie, despite I think he won the best director Oscar for that, which is insane. I think it, um, it won best picture, right? Hazana Vicious, the the director who did that, I think his name is like Michelle Hazana Vicious or something. But uh, he, uh, yeah, I have not heard his name since then, so I can't say that. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I don't really get why everyone was over the moon for that that year, but they had a weird like that. That was like <laughs> it was like in Community where they refer to season four, the season that Dan Harmon wasn't uh, leading the show as the gas leak year. The gas leak. <laughs> I feel like the artist at the Oscars was like the gas leak year. <laughs> yeah, let's. You know, I'm just gonna pull it up just for fun. You know, it's so funny how often I shit on the Oscars and like I claim to not care about it, but man, do I put a lot of thought into <laughs> something I claim to not care about. But what year it's was easy uh, to do though? I mean, it's the only like really major you know thing saying what is the best and what is not. You yeah, know, yeah. I don't know. What'd you ask? All right, I'm 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 googling uh, the Academy Awards. It's 2011, uh, I think. Yeah, 2011. Um, I want to see the nominees for Best Picture. Um, I think it's the 2012 Oscars. Yeah. Um. So it was Best Picture was The Artist, The Descendants, incre- Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close. The Help, Hugo, Midnight in Paris, Moneyball, The Tree of Life, and War Horse. Wow. So a couple of movies in there that I have not seen, but a couple of greats. I think Moneyball is a great movie. Yeah. And I think um, The Descendants, I absolutely adore that of, movie. Yeah, of that grouping. And I mean, I'm sure that there. I've, I would have to look at um, 2011 in terms of like movies I've seen from that era. But I got to believe that there are some others in there that I that are not nominated that I really love. But I will say I do love on, on that list. The Descendants. Hugo is great. Uh, speaking of Scorsese later tonight, um, mm-hmm. that's like his children's film, which is great. Um, yeah. Midnight in Paris, uh, I, I still stand for, even though, yeah. you know, fuck Woody Allen. Moneyball, I love. And then I haven't seen The Tree of Life, but I've heard that movie is brilliant. Yeah, um, I haven't seen that either. I remember the trailer for that was so captivating. I was like, ooh, this seems... Because we have one of his films on on the board, right? Days of Heaven, yeah, which I think is yeah. probably... I, I'm glad that we have that on there because I want to watch that before I watch The Tree of Life. Yeah, yeah, that I've heard that's... That's really, I just remember we've talked about it, but Colin Farrell telling that anecdote about how spontaneous Terrence Malick is as a mm-hmm. director. Well, just, I've got one of uh, the the one that Colin Farrell made with him. I've got sitting on my Criterion shelf that I haven't watched yet. It's still list, cool. still on my list. Yeah, I like where we're at with like we'll hit it hopefully soon. I I, I do want to check it out, mm. and because I think we need to start. Was that his first film or is like his, his like first major film? Well, no. So the I mean, his breakout was Badlands with uh, Martin Sheen, which I have. Oh, seen. I've wanted to see that. I've been I've been intending to put that on the board. But you've seen it? It's brilliant. Um, yeah, it's but it's very meditative, meandery. Like it's not like you know, it's very unconventional. So I mean, that's kind of his style. Like, have you seen the Thin Red Line? Years ago, when I was a kid, and I remember, I mean, I was a teenager or something, you know. Um, I went, I went through this phase where I was super into war, war films, war movies and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had seen Saving Private Ryan and that just absolutely blew me away. To this day, it might be my, what I believe to be Spielberg's best film, but there's so many great choices. But that movie is, is packed such an emotional wallop for me. I love the characters. 
Um, it's it's so hard to watch in a lot of ways, but it's I cannot help but be swept up in the patriotic emotional feeling of it and not just for America, but for any sort of soldierish type of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. Like um, it's nothing that interests me at all in my personal choices in life. Like I never even really considered getting involved with the military, but that movie really just, just, just blows me away. So anyway, I watched that and then I started watching movies like black Hawk down and that was right around when band of brothers came out too. Yeah, yeah, Band of Brothers was banging around. There was the We Were Soldiers I really liked at that time. So I was really digging these movies in this vein. And I saw Thin Red Line in that batch, and it was not what I was expecting. And I don't even think I saw the whole thing. I might have just seen a piece of it. And I think I just didn't accept the movie. And I don't really have, I just remember Woody Harrelson in it vaguely. Like that's, I, mean, a, I don't really have a lot of memory to it. Well, it makes sense that you would remember Woody Harrelson because he does have a really like, um, I don't know, a, uh, he has one of the few scenes in the movie that feels like it should be in a war movie. Like that movie mm-hmm. is very unlike war movies. So it doesn't, it makes sense yeah. that, that you would not respond to it the same way because it's not fulfilling the need that you were looking for at that time. Exactly. It's, it's an art totally. film. It's not a war movie, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and so now I'm I'm very intrigued to see it now that I'm a little bit older, and I you know I would go it's like oh this is not going to be a courage battle crazy war movie mm-hmm. like I'll, I'll be more open to something different and excited for something different. So have you seen it in recent years? It's been a few years, but I, I watched it. Uh, I distinctly remember revisiting it in college, knowing that it was Malik and and understanding that context a little bit better. And I had a much better experience because I had the same reaction to you as a kid. You know, mm-hmm. had the same same deal. I think that was pretty uh, pretty uh, standard for I, I think white males growing up in you know the nineties was to yeah. to fall in love with these post uh, uh, these Private war Ryan. movies. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like. You know, I still love a good war movie, by the way. I think it, I feel like know, there hasn't been one in a while. What was the? What do you think was the last really good war film? Not necessarily great, but like at least very solid. Probably uh, the last one I can think of is nineteen seventeen. Yeah, I never saw that. I heard it was good. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It, I didn't think it was like brilliant by any means, but it uh, it was very good. Yeah, I, I had a really great time with it. Yeah, um, go check that out. It's a little gimmicky. I mean, as with most Sam Mendes stuff, it's like flashy visually, and I don't always feel like it justifies doing that um, yeah. from a story perspective. But yeah, it's really fun. Yeah, I, I Maybe mean, fun's the wrong word, but yeah. If I if I if I recall, I think we were on kind of different sides of this a bit. <clears throat> I was a really big fan of of Birdman. My my memories, you were kind of just meh. Or we, or do oh, you really are we like just talking movie? in terms of like the the single take concept? Yeah, the single because that was a, one of the first ones I ever saw that really brought in these modern techniques of of ways to kind of fake it and make it feel that way. And I remember at the time thinking it was really cool and really refreshing. And but more importantly, I think the movie stands on its own outside of the gimmick. Like I yeah. really like the performances. I really like. I, I the think writing. 1917 is ten times better of a movie as Birdman. Really? Wow. Yeah. So, so but you I, don't. But you I don't... hate Birdman. We've talked about this in the past. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, I thought I couldn't remember if you just disliked it or you. you... I knew you liked. It I don't less think than that I movie did. justifies that that whole thing. Whereas 1917, on a conceptual basis, it's built into the fabric of that movie, which is, yeah. you know, it feels much more organic to it. I think that the 
the ability to pull off the spectacle that they do within that concept is really impressive. And it feels a lot better thought out to me than the Birdman one does. Mm. Um, it's just a it's just a much better movie overall. I mean, there's a reason it was a front runner for best picture that year. It's it's a really really great movie. Yeah, I do want to check it out, but I have grown somewhat tired of the one take ideas. Yeah, it's, it's like, played out. Yeah, it, I'm I'm over it now because it it really does all still boil down to a gimmick for me. Yeah, yeah, it needs it needs a reason to exist, you know. And I can see your argument of it not needing to exist in the birdcage, but Birdman of the birdcage, <laughs> yeah, the birdcage, Birdman. Yeah, I can see your argument that it doesn't really justify its existence in Birdman, but I don't know. I still, I still, there's something about that movie that I really like. Anyway, yeah, that shit's played out, and let's uh, let's just doesn't mean you should just because you can doesn't mean you should. Yeah, yeah, everyone should. Uh Take more cues from Alfonso Cuaron and understand that the magic trick doesn't need to be that it all ties together. It just matters that those individual elements are important to that story. So like Children of Men uses the long take a lot, but I think that it's doing so for purpose. Yeah. And isn't it so, isn't it so bizarre thinking about the movie Gravity that it took people so long to recognize, and, and maybe Kubrick did some of this too, in 2001 but the idea of using the lack of sound in space in a dramatic way and just by having it being removed not only is it more authentic but in a way it's more jarring and more terrifying mm-hmm. like thinking of course that really famous scene at least in my mind it's famous where she's trying to repair the station as it's like getting destroyed right behind her as like the comets are sweeping in and the fact that that is just quiet other than us hearing her breathing like in her suit is so much more exciting and it's like how did how did people not figure that out sooner that I mean, it, I'm, I'm sure it was done on a small scale before but yeah i mean he definitely did it uh he he, he used that it, yeah. a lot more effectively than some others i that movie has i haven't revisited since theaters um i don't, I don't think i need to i don't really need to it was a, yeah it no. was a theater experience and i enjoyed it yeah.